good afternoon. Uh, good to have you here tuning in today. A big, I want to say, just kick off a big hello and uh, thank you for tuning in to my friend Will Lyon. Thanks for tuning in today, mate. Um, uh, also, want to say a big hi to Nat, all the way from New Zealand again. Good to have you tuning in, Nat. Uh, love when you tune in. Tune in. Uh, we're about to open the Bible right now. Uh, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And it's God's personal Word to us. That, that's, that's a huge thing. Uh, the God of the whole universe wants to speak to us uh, today. And so uh, I want to pray before we open the Bible and have a look at what God has to say, that we'd be able to hear uh, what He wants to speak into our souls today. Uh, I don't know where you're at with God at the moment, whether you call yourself a follower or not, how you're feeling towards Him, whether you feel distant from Him or not. Um, where you even are right now in the lounge of other people or by yourself or wherever it is. I want to pray that God would just speak to you where you're, you're at right now and you would hear his words. So let me lead us in prayer right now. Father, we want to thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you are near and close uh, despite how we feel about you or where we're at with you. So I want to ask that you would by your Holy Spirit, just draw us in and speak to our souls. Your word is food for us. It is light for our, our feet and our path. It gives joy to the heart. It restores us. And so we want to ask that you would just help us to listen and, and almost like that you are speaking right to us this afternoon. So Lord, bless our time. Use me as your servant and just remind us of your grace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to begin by playing a game with you. Uh, this morning, Jeremy and I played the same game. He kicked it off in the morning and then I tried to do my sermon. It was, anyway, he's, uh, he's, he's kindly not done it this afternoon. But I'll play a game with you. And it worked really well last week in the kids' spot. So we're going to give it another shot. And as Jez said, it's a 10-second delay. So get typing as soon as you can. Don't leave me hanging here. I, I'm relying on you 4 p.m. to really push through on this. We're going to play a game called Name That Fear. Okay, name that fear, and I'm going to give you a name of a phobia or of a fear, like, you know, aerophobia, and you've heard him what, the, what, that, what that, uh, that, that word is uh, fear for, so, you know, it's the fear of flying. So, uh, it's easy, but please don't cheat, don't Google it, um, you know, I can't see you, but Jesus does, and he knows what you're like, so just be careful of that. Uh, but here we go, so, and they're not easy, I, this morning I really stumped people, I'm like, this is too hard. But I'm at 4 p.m. You can do this. I got you know. These are the top sort of five or ten fears of uh, that people have. So here we go with the first one. The first fear I want to uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, tell me what it is. Acrophobia. Acrophobia. So A C R O P H O B I. What is acrophobia? It's not the fear of acrobats. Just so you're not thinking that way. Because uh, if you went to Cirque du Soleil, that would really freak you out, wouldn't it? Watching the acrobats fly on your head. Uh, but what is the fear? Acrophobia. Now I'm going to rely on those around me to tell me when they have an answer. The fear of toes. From Jade. It's not the fear of toes, but hey, that's it's not a, that probably wouldn't be a common fear, but maybe, yeah. Ac the fear of handstands. And she was live here. <laughs> the fear of handstands. I like that. Uh, it's not that, though. Uh, that's, that's John, I guess, Fernandos is uh, saying something quite silly there. I'll ignore that. Thank you, Jonathan. Spiders, it's, ac it's, it's arachnophobia. It is the fear of heights. Now, I don't know. Everyone has a fear of heights. But that's what it's called. It's called acrophobia. Second one. Here we go. Sinophobia. I want to spell this for you so you can, so you can uh, get this fear. Sinophobia. That's a C 
Y-N-O-P-H-O-B-I. Sinophobia. What is sinophobia? It's not, again, it's not the... Fear of height. Is that? That's what Jeremy's leading me. <laughs> That's a slow one there, Jez. Uh, sinophobia. So it's not the fear of signs. Uh, yeah. Let's keep mocking me. Keep keep that going. Fear of handlebar mustaches. Fear of you know what am I? Of my t-shirt. Let's keep going. These these comments. Uh, sinophobia. What is it? Photography. Fear of photography. I'm hearing. It's not that. Flying flying fish. What would be a common fear? A common fear that people would have. Fear of blinking from jade, I'm hearing. It's not that. It's fear the fear of road signs, dear vault. I like where you're heading with that, but it's not signs. It's actually the technical term for the fear of dogs. Sinophobia. I don't know why sino and that fits together. If someone can explain that, please explain it, but I'm not sure. Third one, got two more to go. Astrophobia. What is astrophobia? So A-S-T-R-A-P-H-O-B-I-I-A, sorry. What is astra? Astra, A-S-T-R-A, Astra, phobia, P-H-O-B-I-A. What is, what is, oh my gosh. I'm just trying to hear what, if, and it's not the fear of holding Astras. <laughs> They're a scary car, watch out for holding Astras out there, but it's not that fear. What is the fear of Astra, phobia? The fear of what? Small yeah, small Holdens, not the fear of small Holdens. Astrophobia. The fear of open spaces. Oh, the fear of people who believe in star signs. Fortune tellers, maybe even. Is that the fear? So it's a common fear. And again, that's the, the official name for the fear of? Yeah. Who's that? Will Lyon. Well done. The fear of thunderstorms and thunder and lightning. It's astrophobia. Will Lyon. Well done, man. Last one. Here we go. This is the last one. The last one is anthropophobia. What is Anthropophobia. I'll spell it A-N-T-R-A-P-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Anthropophobia. What is anthropophobia? Could be a trick. It's my last one to bring it home with this one. Let's Uh, Jacob's calling Will Lyon out for directions he's cheating. I don't think so. I reckon you got that, man. Just stay strong, man. Uh, Anthropophobia. The fear of ants, Calvin. Thanks for playing, but no. Um, <laughs> the fear of horns. It's not the fear of horns. Anthropophobia. Anyone else want to have a shot? The fear of change. No, good, good shot. It's actually the fear of people. That's what it's called. Anthropophobia is the fear of people. Thank you for playing, everyone. I appreciate you uh, jumping in, helping me out there, not leaving me hanging. Well done. Now, I could have named so many more fears or phobias. There are so many fears and phobias out there. We've just named a few. And there are plenty of fears and phobias that plague us as humanity. We have a lot of, we, we fear a lot. And I wonder if you've ever thought about what is fear and what does it do to us? You know, I think when it comes to the word fear, we, we naturally think of being afraid, being scared. And I think that's a part of it in the negative sense, but I think there's also a, a positive side to fear. Uh, it's, it's, it's right to be fearful of something that's worth fear.
fearing. For example, right, if I, if I cross a busy road with my children, I've got them by my hand, I'm fearful of what could happen to them, of the cars coming past, there's a danger there. And there's a right, a right fearfulness in me that I'll be more aware and more conscious of what's going on. That's what fear does. It can, and, it, and it kicks in the adrenaline and you're more aware of what's, what's around you. But there's also a negative side to fear, isn't there? When fears control you or make us think and feel or act in a certain way, and it feels horrible, doesn't it, to be, to be controlled by a fear, almost enslaved by a fear. You know, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible uses this term fear a lot and, you know, fearing God and, and those sort of things. And, and fear isn't just being afraid in the Bible. It also extends to holding someone in awe or, or rightfully seeing for someone for who they are and holding them in high esteem, a, right, a reverence almost, the Bible talks about. And this idea of, uh, of fear and, uh, and, and who do you fear is really a big theme that comes through this passage we're going to look at today. In this section, there's a real spotlight on these religious leaders that are surrounding Jesus. And in this section, Jesus will expose them and reveal what motivates them and who they truly fear. As Jess said, we're continuing, continuing on in our series, uh, uh, looking at Jesus, this king, this king and cross is what the series is called, him being the rightful king who dies on the cross out of his great love for people. And today we come to this chapter just before he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified on the cross. And in this section, Jesus will go head to head with those who oppose him, these religious leaders. And what we're going to see here is Jesus expose their motivations and see they act out of a great fear, not of God, but of people. That's what we're going to try and look at. That's what we're going to look at today. Now, as always, I'm going to try and uh, navigate this, this quite big passage. I'm going to give you three observations. Helps me to get my thinking right. Helps you to know where I'm going. Here they are here. Um, the danger of fear. Whom do you fear? And the freedom of fear. And we're going to try and navigate this, this chapter by looking at these three observations. So let's start with the danger of fear. Let me read to you just two little sentences from the, the end of, of Mark 11. It says this, it'll be on the screen there. It says, uh, And they came, so Jesus and his followers came to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, in this section, as I said, on four occasions, Jesus is going to be challenged by these religious leaders. They were in charge of the temple, and Jesus was now going. He knew, he, he, he was, he, he knew that he was going to die really, really soon. So now he was going all out and challenging them on their turf, the temple being their turf. And so they ask him this question in sentence 28, whose authority do you have and why are you doing these things? They want to challenge Jesus, but more than that, they want to trap him. They want to, they want to, they want to in their minds, expose him. And we read that in sentence 13 of chapter 12. They're trying to trap Jesus with this confrontation, these questions that they ask of him. They want him to say something outrageous or, or in their mind, dumb, and so the crowds will turn upon him. And Jesus, has come, uh, and, and Jesus has come to them, and he's confronted their leadership. They're angry, and they want to expose him, and they want him to, they want, they want him to move away because he's challenged their religion, their view of God, and how they relate to God. And so they feel exposed and so they want to confront him and, and trap him. And so four times this is going to happen in this chapter. And so we read here at the end of chapter 11, uh, they ask Jesus, on what authority do you do these things? And basically they want Jesus to say something crazy. They want Jesus to say, well, I have God's authority, or in fact, I'm God himself here on earth. And they'll say, oh, it's a blasphemy. See, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. 
They're really trying to trap him here. Second confrontation happens in sentences 12 to 17. They ask Jesus a question basically saying, hey Jesus, should we uh, uh, Jews follow Caesar or not, the emperor of the day? Hoping Jesus will either say yes, uh, you should follow, uh, you should, um, uh, uh, yes, you should follow Caesar, and they would say, well, no, God's our God, not Caesar, we don't follow him. Or Jesus would say, no, uh, don't follow Caesar. Though, then they would run to the Romans and say, hey, Jesus is causing this uprising against Caesar, go and arrest him. They're trying to trap Jesus again. You see it again in sentences 18 to 20, where the religious leaders give this comical scenario of a woman who's married, uh, who's unluckily married, you know, a husband who died, then, then his brother who died, then his brother, and it goes to 10 people or so. Quite ridiculous. And they're almost saying to Jesus, hey, you, you say the resurrection's real, you say heaven's real. So in heaven, with this woman's married to these people, who's a real husband in heaven? Almost mocking Jesus and, 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 and want him, want, wants him to push back on this whole thing of the resurrection and saying how silly it is. Again, trying to trap Jesus. Then finally, in Genesis 28 to 34, a religious leader comes and says to Jesus, so Jesus, which one of all the commandments, you tell me which is the most important one. Just pick one, Jesus. And again, really trying to trap Jesus in his words. And they're trying to test him and expose him because he's exposed them. And I wish I had more time to sit in this because Jesus' answers are, f- are phenomenal. It's really worth it. I hope you go back and read this chapter and just see how Jesus answers each of these questions so well. It really reveals uh, his wisdom. The answers are brilliant. His wisdom is unmatched. And every time they think they've cornered him, he turns it on them and exposes their hearts and hearts and gives them speechless. Because he knows their motivations. He knows what they're trying to do to him. But it shows here God's wisdom. And the crowds are left in awe of Jesus. And, and the religious leaders are left looking foolish. You read in Mark 11.33, the religious leaders are left speechless with Jesus' answer. Mark 12.17, the crowds marvel at Jesus' wisdom. Mark 12.34, Jesus answered the challenges so well, he puts them in their place and then no one asks any more questions out of, say, of fear of being exposed again and being made look silly. And you see here from Jesus that he is, that he is God's wisdom incarnate that he is God in the flesh, he is the promised king who knows all, sees all, who will not be tricked, who will not be trapped, and he is worth listening to and following. And his wisdom is unsurpassed back then, now and forevermore. That is who Jesus is, the wise one. But I want to focus a little more on these religious leaders and what motivates them to really go at Jesus like this. I want to show you their motivation. We read in the sentence 32 of chapter 11, just after they asked a, uh, Jesus asks them a question, they choose not to answer because it tells us, Mark tells us in the text there, that they were afraid of the people. 12, 12, uh, chapter 12, sentence 12, after Jesus speaks a parable against them that we'll look at in just a minute, they're so angry and they want to arrest Jesus, but they can't or they choose not to. Why? It says there, because they feared the people. And then finally, in, cha- in sentences 38 to 40 of chapter 12, we read Jesus saying this and warning the people not to be like these religious leaders. And he says this, Beware of the scribes or the religious leaders who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and they have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and, and for a pretense make long prayers. Jesus is saying they will receive a greater condemnation. And you see in these in this passages here that these religious leaders fear. They fear the opinions of others. And they had this deep, deep longing to be liked, to be loved, to be honored by people, to be seen, to have power, to have authority. And they crave it. And it's almost like they need it so much. And they are willing to do anything 
to get it. It's what's called the fear of man. And the sad thing is, this fear of man has such a grip over them. These religious leaders of the day, the very ones who are appointed to, to point people to God, they actually miss God himself who's standing smack bang in front of them. He's standing right in front of them in Jesus. And they cannot see it because this fear of man has crippled them. And I think here we see the danger of fear. You know, I've mentioned before that um, my family and I love going to the movies in the school holidays. And, and we have our routine. We go to McDonald's first and we get our, we get our drinks and pour them into our, our drink bottles. And then we go into the, to the movies and we get our tickets and our big box of popcorn. And we're all ready for our movie. And I have a rule, because we have one box of popcorn, is that no one can eat popcorn until the movie starts. You know when you go to the movies, there's like 30 minutes of ads. No one can touch the popcorn. You, I have it, I hold it, and no, no, no one is touching that box of popcorn. And now the kids, are, uh, and um, this causes a problem. Once the movie starts, it is game on for that box of popcorn. And the kids and the dad, me, are worried that we will not get any popcorn. So uh, what happens is there's a feeding frenzy. Hands are going everywhere. You've double parked with two full boxes of pop, uh, hands full of popcorn. You're just shoving it in so you do not miss out on the popcorn. And popcorn is flying everywhere. But what happens is you get so focused on eating that popcorn, making sure you're getting enough popcorn, that you miss the first 20 minutes of the movie. And so you miss the whole start, so you're not really sure what's going on. And it's, and it's silly because you're not there for popcorn, you're there for the movie. We've paid money. I've paid good money to, to see this movie. And I want my kids to enjoy it. And so it's funny because they're missing out on the main game. They, they've come for the movie and you get distracted by this popcorn. You see, these religious leaders have this fear of man. They are so consumed what others think of them. And they, have, and they make these decisions out of fear. And because of this, they missed the very thing they were longing for. The whole of the Old Testament is pointing towards this Savior, this King, this Messiah coming to rescue, to, for God to come Himself. And He arrives in Jesus. And they miss it because of their fear, their fear of man. And, and, and it seems crazy to me that they're, they're craving so much attention from people and they're willing to do anything to crave that. And when Jesus confronts them and exposes them, they are, they are willing to even kill him uh, so that people will think well of them. It seems crazy. This is the danger of fear. In the middle of this section that we're looking at, Jesus tells a parable. So we have four confrontations going on. And almost in the middle of, the, in the middle of this chapter, Jesus tells a parable. Now Jesus tells parables to teach a point using things that are around the people, like an illustration they would know that's common for them. And then often in the parable, he exposes a heart, a someone's motivation heart. He twists, it, he twists the story. Uh, this is the story that Jez read for us before, the parable of the tenants. Let me just walk through this with you and show you why Jesus does this in the middle of these com uh, confrontations. So 12.1 says this, A man planted a vineyard, so Jesus is telling the story, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased the land to the tenants, and then he went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So a man uh, owns some land, has a vineyard, leases it out, and part of that agreement is that he gets some fruit when it comes ripe, that it's his. And so he sends his servant to collect the fruit. What do the tenants do when the servants come to collect the fruit? Sentence three, they took him, the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to another servant, 
Uh, then again, he sent another servant, and they struck him and hit him on the head and treated him, him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him as well. And so, and so with many others, and some they beat and some they killed. And it seemed no matter who the landowner sent to collect this fruit, the tenants beat or kill, uh, killed them, even though the landowner had every right to, and, and is entitled to the fruit. So what does the landowner do? Senate 6. He, he, uh, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The landowner sends his beloved son, uh, thinking the tenants will res- surely respect this one. They know it's my son, but no. He too is uh, killed and treated with disdain. And more than this, the tenants think that somehow through killing the 